It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. In war, oftentimes the most fierce battles follow the most significant breakthroughs. The same can be true in our spiritual lives. Hey, this is Eric. In this episode, we're going to join the Allied forces as they labor to leverage their recent victory on the shorelines of Normandy into a military breakout into Europe and bring down Hitler. Their motive is a good one, and they have tremendous momentum. So why are they going to have so much friction in taking the next steps forward? The simple answer is, they have an enemy. This one is called Rushing the Bocage. And I think I just put the word bocage in there just because it is a really cool word. And I like the sound of it. I like the word like bouquet, corsage, bocage. And so there's something, it's a French word because we're in France right now in World War II. We have just hit hit the beaches of Normandy and we have seen a breaking of the enemy lines. It's called the Atlantic Wall, or some people refer to it as Fortress Europe. And, And Hitler had his ground, he had his fortress. And two and a half years of preparation and uh, the Normandy invasion, also known as Operation Overlord, uh, is uh, June 6th, 1944. At 6.36 a.m., we hit the beaches and there's a breakthrough. It was not an easy one. It was a a definite uh, bloodbath and there was a lot of loss of life. But it is a heroic achievement. There's been a breakthrough. And now we are setting ourselves up for what could be called the breakout. So not the breakthrough, but the breakout where the allied forces begin to spread through Europe and begin to take territory. They're after Berlin. They want to take the capital city and bring down Hitler. And so we're at this very exciting stage of the war. uh, And there's some parallels that I'm going to draw on today that I think you're going to find very interesting that Definitely, it's because even as I was putting this together, it's like, haven't I given this one message multiple times in this series? I mean, here we are at 70. Isn't that a great number to land on, episode 70? Uh, here we are, episode 70. I've given this before, and it's, it's like, I don't know if I have. I was trying to think through. I don't know that I've actually said this, but this would be like classic warfare. That would almost be the subtitle to this, Rushing the Bocage, Classic Warfare, A Study in Classic Warfare. This is just how it works. And so you'd think that I would have covered this somewhere along the line. But I, of course, there's going to be hints. There's going to be truths that I, I've, I've definitely covered over the past 69 episodes. But this is just a unique uh, layout that is staring at us in the history books of what is going to take place after the victory. And the same thing you're going to see in your life when you move forward and there's a breakthrough in your soul, an initial breakthrough of grace where you say yes to Jesus, and it's like you plunge that cross right into the belly of the devil, and he winces, he, he recognizes he has lost you. And so you have transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son, something significant has happened. That's sort of like D-Day, right? And then you would think, I mean, all of us as rational uh, human beings, we come to the same conclusion. Now that I've believed, and I have experienced this joy of salvation. Do you remember those first four days where they're having a luncheon uh, at that chateau near the lakes and lawns? This is in Normandy, France, in this zone, three miles from uh, the German line, and they are just exuberant. They're so full of joy. It's like joy of salvation. This is exciting. And they're beginning to inspect the new territory that they have. 
Well, the next day, that was June 10th. So June 6th, uh, 1944 is D-Day. June 10th is the luncheon on the lawn, okay? The exuberance. Uh, June 11th is going to be the, the beginnings of something which is going to be a whole new level of friction, and that is they're trying to stake claim. They're trying to establish what's called a continuous line or a fortified wall to be then begin to push against uh, the Nazis. And so everything has been going so well. And then they're going to run into friction. How could we run into friction in our Christian lives when we serve the Most High God who is over all? Didn't we just win the shores uh, of Normandy? Didn't we just win this day? We, are, we feel so good. You'd think the enemy would just throw down his weapons and give up. You ever had that thought? I mean, I, believe me, I, I used to have the thought when I was a young Christian, it's like, why is there actually a battle even that exists? If the devil's defeated, his head is crushed, what is this? I could have sworn that I believed in Jesus to save my life. Doesn't that mean I'm saved from all difficulty too? All, you know, last thing I want is any gunpowder in my eyes from this point forward. I want ease. I want comfort. Of course, that's part of the gospel that's dished out. You take the beaches of Normandy, and now from this point forward, you will have health, wealth, and prosperity. And we don't understand the battle that we are engaged in even after we have the breakthrough in our life. The breakout season of our life when we are actually beginning to take the territory that is unlawfully the enemies and is lawfully Europe's or the allies, if you want to say, hey, let's get back France for France. Let's get back Belgium for Belgium. Let's get back Holland for Holland. This is, in other words, let's take back the rightful territory. Well, that breakout is marred by a whole bunch of friction. The devil doesn't just lay down his arms. The devil is rather hostile, let's just say it that way, to our forward movements. And so rushing the bocage is, is just sort of fun to say because I don't get to say it that many times in this because technically it really isn't about the bocage. It is because I weave it in because I want to use the word. <clears throat> oh, my clicker's not even on, guys. So the first steps after the victory are often the most arduous. So all the way up to D-Day, it is, it is really hard, okay? We've, we've slogged through a lot of difficulty to get to here. So you can sort of feel the jubilance. And I, to be honest, out of all of World War II, even most of the 30s, I have not felt the lightness of the luncheon on the lawn. Okay, the luncheon on the lawn is just, it, it's therapeutic for me, okay, after spending this much time in World War II, the luncheon on the lawn was just really, really nice. And how about when they have the battleship uh, and they shoot uh, the artillery shells into the forest and then zoom away? It's like, that felt good. It just felt really good to sort of exercise the weapons of warfare that we have and just, what was it, uh, give it a plug. I don't remember what the term was in the British. Give it, why don't we give the enemy a plug or something like that? It's like, yeah, let's do that. So the first steps after the victory are often the most arduous, partly because we expect the enemy to sort of lay down. And it actually surprises us at a whole nother level. When, we were, when the enemy has his fortress Europe, we recognize this is going to be hard, so we accept the hard. But when we have the breakthrough, we sort of expect just the breakthrough to continue and the dominoes to fall. We don't expect a retaliation. One of the things that I have noted in my life 
is every significant step forward, when I have a vision, it's like, okay, I have clarity of where I'm supposed to go. And it's a D-Day type of breakthrough in my understanding. It's a clear vision for next steps. And we, the longer you live on this earth, you recognize how valuable vision is. And you never want to take it lightly. Because when you are seeing clearly what God has in store for you for this next season, I mean, you, you cherish it. But to actually see that vision unfold is a little harder than it was just in your mind. In, in your mind, you're like, okay, I have the vision. Let's do it. And you have this romantic hue over that vision that you know, every door is just going to fly open. And there'll be a red carpet that rolls out in front of you. And then you walk down the hall and you have this music that is playing. And then everyone's cheering as you walk into the ballroom of your vision. And for whatever reason, it doesn't unfold that way. There is skirmish and battle and hard-fought territory. And every inch of that hallway is harder to get down than it was in your imagination. And as a result, you are surprised by the resistance. You are taken off guard. You consider it strange, to use a Peter term uh, in the New Testament. You consider it strange when you face that trial as you're navigating down the hall to just walk out the vision that God has given you. This is the other thing that's hard for us, is the guy down the street that doesn't know Jesus, who's living in sin, does not have the same friction to accomplish the simple things in life that you as a Christian have. Does that bother you at all? <laughs> it sure can niggle at you when you realize that for whatever reason, all of us have challenge. Okay, I've said this many times. All of us have challenge because we live in a sinful world. So you, no matter who you are, you're going to have obstacles. You're going to have challenge. You're going to have trials in this life. But a Christian has greater challenges. It's like bonus friction. Why? Well, be, you do know that you're against the prince of the power of the air. You do recognize that you have sided against the systems of this earth. You didn't think that they were just going to fall down and play dead, did you? You see, you are now entering into a hostile situation. And so as a result, when you face those greater frictions, you might as well smile and say, huh, this is evidence I must be going in the right direction. All right, so June 11th through July 15th, 1944. I could have called this the beginnings of the breakout. I mean, the whole thing is a breakout, but D-Day, which is going to be, well, let's just call it the first four days, June 6th through June 10th. You know, we have the luncheon on the lawn, the peace finally is filling the air of this nearby region of Normandy. And so all the allied chiefs of staff come over and they're just enjoying it, basking and it, smiling. There's a lightheartedness that hasn't been in the allied troops for a long time. And now we're going to sort of launch into the onset of what we could call the breakout, okay? Where it's not the breakthrough, we already had that, now it's the breakout. And this shouldn't be that hard, okay? Even in the Allies' mind, they had it figured that they would take the, the small town of Cain, which is going to be a very, very significant location strategically on the map, uh, because from Cain they're going to turn uh, and they're going to take Paris and they're going to go after Berlin, okay? This, I mean, it's a good strategy on paper. However, uh, they're supposed to have it by June 11th. June 11th, they don't have it. And now, look, I mean, July 15th, that's a long <laughs> stretch to get. One little town, and when you see it on the map, you'll recognize these guys haven't gone very far. This first step forward in the breakout is very difficult. 
So we'll call it the delay, the little old town of Cain and a thousand things besides. It's not just Cain, but it's, it's all these other things that are going to happen that are going to throw the allies off where they're dizzied afresh. Here they are, they have so much momentum, and then they are going to run into this dizzy spell for over a month as they're trying to get their act together to just utilize all the strength they have to marshal it against the enemy. When someone arrives at Ellerslie and they have a breakthrough, it's funny because you would think that now it would just be the sound of angel choir around them. Instead, they sort of run into this. They're running into something, but the problem is they consider it strange and they panic, sort of like something must be wrong, because that's what the enemy says. It's like, well, you must have a problem if you have gunpowder in your eyes, because didn't you, don't you serve Jesus, and aren't you supposed to have peace that passes all understanding? Well, this doesn't look like peace to me. And so he's, you know, mouthing off uh, at you, trying to disturb the peace you do have, because if you recognize that, no, this is hard-fought territory, and as we begin Operation Breakout, if I'm, I'm, I'm giving it that name, as we enter into this breakout season, the enemy is actually scared. But he doesn't want to let on that if you keep pressing, you will actually gain Berlin. He doesn't want you to know that. He wants you to think that it's just gonna get harder and harder and harder as you progress. You see, I'm gonna call this classic warfare. The enemy doesn't want to show you that he's on his heels. He doesn't want you to know that he is terrified right now because of what you've just accomplished, what has just happened in your life or what just happened on the beaches of Normandy. This is a huge blow to the enemy ranks. And so they are trying to re-fortify behind the lines and they're not going to let you know that they have any sweat beating up on their forehead. They want you to think that they have you right where they want you. Okay, so this is classic warfare. This is just how it works. So here we are. I have a little sketch uh, of Winston Churchill's out of his memoirs. Uh, and you see this top area right here. That is sort of the beaches of Normandy area in the blue. I, I put a blue square about it. I was trying to do a blue line because uh, it would have been really cool. And it was taking, oh, I don't know, 10 minutes of my morning. And I decided this isn't worth it. So I just did a square. Uh, it's a general area. And underneath it, you're going to see, I'm going to put a little uh, box around cane. Okay, now you can see the, uh, the miles marker. Or actually, part of the mile marker is like off the screen, so you can't totally see it. But you get the idea. Remember in the, the luncheon, they were, you know, they had gained around seven to eight miles, okay? So you see that cane is somewhere around that 10-mile point. They're expecting to take this in the very beginning. This is just part of their grand strategy they're not going to take this until right around July 15th. Uh, and so, I mean, that's like terrible as far as they're concerned. There's going to be a lot of loss of life just to gain this, this what, on, on the screen, like a centimeter. I mean, this is hardly anything. On a big map, if you were to look at a big map of, of France, this is pathetic, guys. Okay, we're talking like, hey, let's, can we go a mile more? Uh, and so this is going to be very disheartening to the Allies after this significant breakthrough. So Winston Churchill is going to say this in his memoirs. The enemy fought stubbornly and were not easily overcome. Everywhere the country was suited to infantry defense. 
You see, the Allies are going to bring over their tanks and they're going to have all their artillery, which is a huge accomplishment to bring all this stuff over, which is all part of the two and a half year strategy. And artillery and tanks are very formidable uh, offensive weapons. The problem is the countryside of France was not suitable to actually drive tanks over. And so where the enemy was positioning himself was very strategic into places where they couldn't bring the tanks and couldn't use artillery the same way. The Bocage, see, uh, guys, I had to come up with a, a way to get this into the title and into the message. The Bocage, which covers much of Normandy, consists of a multitude of small fields divided by banks with ditches and very high hedges. So the reason it was difficult just to bring a tank over is because you have all these ditches and you have these uh, trees and hedges, and it's just how France is set up, which I think is really beautiful. I mean, I, that's, that's just really uh, gorgeous. I mean, if you didn't have to have a war in the middle of it, but each one of these fields would become a stronghold for the enemy. So you'd take one field, and the next one would be, have to be broken, because you couldn't just blaze through it with the tank the way you always had, because of just the, the, the terrain, so artillery support was hindered by lack of good observation. It was extremely difficult to use tanks. It was infantry fighting all the way with every little field of potential strong point. Now I, I want to pause right there. God Almighty has such ability to devastate the enemy. Have you ever had this thought? It's like, why am I dealing with these trivial little battles and that seems so hard when I serve the God of the universe? And could you imagine the way the allied forces are feeling like, why don't we use our tanks? We just spent a whole bunch of money building uh, equipment so we can get tanks over here and we can't even use our tanks? What about all our art artillery? You know how much money we've invested in artillery and all the shells and everything that we're ready to bomb the enemy with? Where's all that? Instead, it's like slogging with fists up close and personal fighting to make it through this. It's like, why does this have to be so difficult? So the infantry, that's, that just basically means foot soldiers. or soldiers fighting on foot. You know, that's not the easiest way when you could just, you know, use your air force and bomb and things like this. This is like to move forward, you have very real men that have to be dealt with hiding in real crevices, and you can't just bomb because you'll bomb your own men at the same time. It's not as clear of a battle line as you're used to. It's not just uh, two trenches apart from no man's land fighting, you know, shelling each other. This is like... Uh, infantry battling. This is like classic warfare uh, from the past all of a sudden. Slogging it out man to man through the bocage. See, you guys, you notice that I, I got bocage in there again. You guys are going to probably, well, I can see some of you even rehearsing it in your minds. Like when I get into private, I'm going to say the word a few times. It's a, it's a cool, cool word. So the classic questions, why doesn't God just wipe out the enemy? Why doesn't God just blast him with artillery shells? Why doesn't God just bring in his tanks and silence this resistance? We don't understand everything about how the battle works. It seems to be on purpose. God is going to give us understanding to the degree that we need. And he says, trust me. There are things that either we don't, we're not ready and prepared to understand it, or uh, it's actually better that we don't know and that's part of how faith works. There's certain things we don't know. There's a, a great story uh, of Corey Ten Boom and her father, Casper, Casper uh, Ten Boom, and they're on a train. He was a watchmaker, so he always carried this 
this big uh, case of watch parts, and it was very, very heavy, sort of like a suitcase full of them. And so they're on this train or public transit of some kind, and so these young kids, I picture them like high school, junior high, high school age, they're nearby, sitting nearby, and they're speaking about things that are very unsavory and unhealthy, uncouth, not the type of thing that a parent wants their child to be listening in on, right? And so... Corey hears some words that she's never heard before in her life. And so she's intrigued. And so she looks over at her father and she says, Papa, what does mean? You know, I don't know what the was, uh, but she asked her father and her father didn't answer. He just sort of stared, acted like he didn't hear her. And uh, so and that wasn't like him. He's, he loved to answer her questions. And so she was sheepishly quiet after that. And then they arrived at the depot or wherever they were going. And uh, he said, oh, Corey, could you pick up my suitcase for me? And she's thinking, what? You know how heavy this thing is? And she goes, yes, Papa. And she leans down and she can't pick it up. And she goes, but Papa, it's too heavy for me. She goes, and he goes, I know, I know. And so is uh, the answer to the question that you asked earlier. For right now, you're gonna need to trust that it's something that until you are ready, that I under- I'll know when you're ready. And for right now, could you let Papa carry it for you? Instead, because you're not yet ready to carry it. And it was just like this understanding of fatherhood that God is saying, look, there's certain things you may not be ready to carry. Could you let me carry them for you? And you know, our proper response is, yes, Papa. <laughs> you know what's best. And so we don't understand why the battle is this way. For instance, the, ally, the infantry may not understand why the tanks aren't coming to their rescue and why the artillery shells aren't firing. But there are people that are higher up that know exactly why, and you sort of need to trust that whatever they see right now is what we need to work with. The same thing is going to happen when we go to the book of Daniel. Daniel is burdened at such a deep level, and he's going to go into this, this phase, this 21-day phase of fasting, and it's a pretty extreme uh, process he's going through, and he's burdened in his soul. He's going to pray for 21 days. Something significant is happening. That we know. And so it says, this angel, by the way, is going to appear to him uh, after these 21 days, and this is what he's going to say to Daniel. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. You know, whether or not that explains much to us, it does explain one thing. For instance, it only intrigues us all the more. We're like, wait a minute. (laughs) So you, some sort of messenger from God, were immediately responding when Daniel started praying 21 days ago. That's one thing we know. In other words, there's an immediate response, but then there's a resistance that is unexpected in all of our minds. It's like, well, if God sends a response, you'd think God's response could break through. I mean, who, I don't care about the kings of Persia. I mean, in our mind, they're defeated. They're nothing compared to God's messenger, and yet there seems to be a resistance. And then we see Michael, who we'll oftentimes refer to as the archangel, basically from this passage, is going to break it through so that this messenger can reach Daniel. And we're like, huh. Okay, that doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does show that there's more going on than we realize. There's more than meets the eye that is taking place. Our job is to do what Daniel's doing. 
to continue to press our plea, knowing that God is responding and he is answering, even though it seems like we're in infantry mode, having to fight hand-to-hand, slogging our way through the bocage. See, I found another excuse to get that into the message. And yet, do you trust that your God knows best? So the classic questions, why do we even need to pray? If God is going to win anyway, why do we need to engage in all this uncomfortable business of war? Can't God just do it? Why must I get dirtied in this whole affair? I don't know if that's just a North American mentality or if this has been throughout Earth's history, but this idea, most people, you know, for me, I consider it a great honor that God would assign me a task in this whole thing that he would make me an infantryman in his uh, fighting force. To me, it's an honor, but a lot of people are just sort of like, hey, if God's going to accomplish what God's going to accomplish, they get this idea of sovereignty that basically substitutes our involvement and our obedience and our willingness to pray and to wield weapons of warfare and to do the work of the kingdom. They replace that with, well, God's going to do it anyways. Okay, it's this really interesting twist that actually causes Christianity to become non-functional. And it moves us into fairy tale land, la-la land is another term for it. In other words, God has actually given us an assignment and it's his purposes in this earth to utilize human bodies through which to reveal his glory. We are operationally important in this because he chose that. He didn't need to. He could have done it any way he wanted, and yet he has chosen to actually utilize us. He wants to use these eyes, this mouth, these hands, these ears, this heart. He wants to animate his truth in and through a body. Of course, that's what we see in and through the life of Jesus himself. It is through a human body that the glory of God is going to be seen. You will know the Father by seeing Jesus. You will know the Father's heart. You will know his purpose by just watching Jesus. Now, just watch the body of Christ today, and you will see the invisible purposes of God revealed. The manifold wisdom of God will be revealed unto the heavenly realms in and through us. And our praying matters. And we need to hear that fresh message from, the, from that angelic character that says, from the moment you first began to ask, I was moving. You see, God is doing something in this earth, and he hears every prayer we're praying, and every prayer matters. If someone's not praying, God's not moving. You could say, wow, God makes himself dependent upon the praying, but who gets you to pray? God does. You see, God knows his own system and his own economy, and he's going to move us to pray. Our obedience and willingness to join with him in that task actually is going to bring about the change of this earth. The classic questions. Hasn't the devil read the Bible? Doesn't he realize that all of his efforts are in vain and that he will not win this war? Why doesn't he just give up? Boys, yeah, I, I, this, these are just the classic questions. I don't know if as I read all these questions, you're like, boy, he's reading my mind, or that's in my journal last night. These are just the classic questions of history, okay? If, what, is the devil, doesn't he understand how it ends? Doesn't he know that God cannot lie and God is greater than he is? You have to remember that the devil is a deceiver. He's a liar. You do need to understand the nature of lies, The more you lie, you begin to actually live in a world in which your lies are now truth. And so the devil 
is the father of lies. And he's been lying from the beginning, which means he is deeply entrenched in lies. He only knows how to lie. He lives in a world in a web of deceit. And so you can even just imagine what he tells his troops. You know, we're going to win this. You know, God is a liar. You know, he's twisted everything. Just imagine what he tells us. Well, what do you think he's going to tell his troops? He is going to lie at every turn. Do you think he tells the truth to his troops and then he lies to us? It's like, yes, guys, we're going to go down. It's all going to fall to pieces. But (laughs) you tell them lies, right? He's a liar. The whole system is a network of lies and deceit. So as a result, that plays against the enemy. He lies to himself. He believes his own lies. You wonder why in the world the devil is so uh, set on his mission. Well, it's his mission. It's his mission to destroy the glory of God, and he's lied to himself to declare, even to believe that he can accomplish it. June 11th, 1944. The Allies form a continuous front in Normandy. Boom, they have their wall. They are ready for breakout. June 12th through 13th, something unexpected happens. The Luftwaffe, which is the air force of uh, the Germans, is going to bomb London. And so for two straight days, they're going to have bombs landing on London again, which hasn't happened since 1940, and it wasn't the most pleasant of memories for the people of Great Britain. And so this is like something that they thought was in the past. Remember, they are in fresh rejoicing mode because of the breakthrough at Normandy. And now they're being bombed again, which is bringing them back in history really quick. Have you ever had that happen? Where literally you have just had a breakthrough and then something is going to happen. The devil knows your trigger points. And he is going to try and press that one button to get you to believe that there has been nothing gained. In fact, maybe you're going back in time. I mean, 1940? I mean, that's a long time back. They have not been bombed on the, on, in, in London since 1940 in the fall. And now suddenly four years later, boom, 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 and buildings are falling again. Whew, that's a hard thing. The way that I've always termed it is that's a link. The devil wants to create a link with something in your past so that he can press forward a lie. He knows our buttons, guys. He studies us. I don't know, you know, the devil's not all-knowing, but for whatever reason, he has some kind of catalog on the saints of God, and he knows our weak points. You know what, what, you know what would terrify them? Bomb them in London again and say, see, you're going backwards. You see, this was, I mean, they just had a breakthrough, guys. This is, and it really is genuinely in history a breakthrough. However, right now on June 12th and 13th, they just had a luncheon in the lawn. (laughs) I mean, it felt so peaceful and tranquil. Remember the cows? They were frolicking around. I mean, we had so much beauty, and now we're being bombed again. This wasn't part of the plan. You can just imagine the people of London and how they felt about that and what they're thinking about their leaders and the fact that their leaders aren't protecting them. What is the same thing we do? It's like, hey, God, how could you allow this? I just gave my life to you. You see, we need to be set and ready for an engagement with the enemy. And we should not consider it strange when London is bombed after we form a continuous line for a breakout in Europe. Okay? I mean, if all of us looking back in history, should we look at all those Londoners and go, come on, guys, wake up. It was D-Day. Big victory. Don't panic. You're going to win this war. I and mean, we can tell them because we see it, right? Well, so does God. And he's like, I got this, guys. <laughs> I got this. We're going to take Berlin, okay? It's, it's okay. However, for us, we're taken off guard and shaken. 
So June 11th through 19th, something very, very significant is happening, which I'm going to deal with on Monday, which is, I'm very excited about. And it's called Operation Pluto. And I'm not going to go into it, but I'm going to say that it's very, very significant. It's actually one of the most intriguing things as far as all of what the Allied forces are going to build and one of their inventions that they're going to have and how that plays into our Christian life. But Port and Besson, the supply line is established. They're going to create a supply line, and its key base is going to be this port, Port and Besson. And they're going to basically establish the port. This is a critical thing. I mean, for all that they're, they're going to be doing for the rest of the war, boom, this is huge. And, uh, and then right from this point, as this huge step forward is taking place, which you'll understand more on Monday, I'm going to just call it the ridiculous, unimaginable, unprecedented four-day gale. A gale is just a, you know, a few degrees under a hurricane. Okay, It's just going to blast the shoreline of France for four straight days where they just built all this stuff up. And so I'll, I, I don't know, have you ever felt this before too? Wait, 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 I'm, I'm taking a strong step forward and suddenly four days of gale winds? Uh, excuse me, God, hey! Hey, you out there, uh, uh, your child is sort of in the midst of this. You could have sent that to Germany. Instead, you hit the shorelines of France, which is what the territory we just took, and we just set up this key supply line so that we could win on behalf of the good guys. Okay, good guys, I want to emphasize that. Good guys, bad guys over there. Okay, you ever felt this? So the submarine pipelines, Pluto, were to come into action later. But meanwhile, Port and Besson was being developed as the main supply port for petrol. But then a four-day gale began, which almost entirely prevented the landing of men and material and did great damage to the newly sunk breakwaters. Operation Breakout! Let's take Europe! Remember the luncheon on the lawn, the cows frolicking? I mean, everything is so lighthearted and beautiful. Let's take them! And then everything just goes on meltdown. Many floating structures which were not designed for such conditions broke from their moorings and crashed into other breakwaters in the anchored shipping. The harbor in the American sector was ruined and its serviceable parts were used to repair our manches. This gale, the like of which had not been known in June for 40 years. You ever had that feeling too? It's like, oh, we haven't seen something like this in 40 years. It's like, well, great. I'm so glad I could pick the little stretch of time in June of 1944 when it returns, <laughs> right when it's critical that we are stable and stationary. This, is, this isn't like a small time in history here. This is a world war, and the good guys are making their move against the bad guys. I mean, you come on. We were already behind our program of unloading. Oh, wait a minute. I, let me read that sentence before because I don't know if I finished it. This gale, the like of which had not been known in June for 40 years, was a severe misfortune. We were already behind our program of unloading. Winston Churchill continues, the breakout was equally delayed, and on June 23rd, we stood only on the line we had prescribed for the 11th. Oh, we had such a great vision for how we were going to move forward in this situation. So you can fill in the blank for you. Okay, every forward step for Leslie and I in our home, for our family, is met with, well, I forgot what my term was, ridiculous, unimaginable, uh, flabbergasted, I don't remember what the other word was, delays. It's like, why is this so hard to do things like set up a new curriculum for our kids to have for school? Okay, 
That shouldn't be that difficult, and yet it is a forward movement of developing a weapon for the gospel known as the Ludi kids. And so no matter what the Ludi family goes after, everything seems harder than it does for the person right down the road. It's like, hey, so how did uh, it go for you to get your new curriculum installed? Oh, it was a breeze. Oh, well, that's, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm used to it now, okay? I'm used to it. I understand the battle. In fact, Leslie and I are very aware the moment we launch, because it's usually on a Monday. I should like launch things on a Saturday just to throw the enemy off. It's usually on a Monday, and we will have un- unusual sickness that could try and hit our home. Leslie has, has oftentimes in the past been in bed with a migraine on that Monday, okay? Bombings of London, guys, okay? It's like you would think the enemy's saying, yeah, you may not want to go this direction. You may just want to give up on this new math curriculum you're trying to install. Yeah, it's that sort of thing. It's like, how dangerous is that? And yet, no matter what we have done at every step forward of an aggressive push of a new schedule, here's what we're going to do. We're going to protect this time. We're going to have prayer with the family here. Here's how we're going to do it. We run into gale force winds. I'm not shocked by it. The key that we've learned is to keep pressing. Do not allow the bluster to intimidate you. Keep moving forward. March! March! Onward! But this has taken a lot longer than it should. We were supposed to be at this point already. March! Classic enemy. He will retaliate. Okay, this is just classic enemy. This is classic warfare. The enemy, and you'll notice this all throughout the war. You study any war. If your you know, key central uh, ports or your uh, manufacturing plants get hit, you know, what's, what's the responsibility of the country that just got hit? To send a message is what it's called. To send a message back and hit them. Okay, so when you're hitting the enemy, believe me, he wants to send a message. He wants to say you messed with the wrong side, right? And so as a result, you need to be ready for the message to be sent. So expect it and bear it up well. Here's another thing about our enemy. He's proud and won't yield territory. I don't think the devil knows such a thing as a white flag, okay? That's important for you to know. That actually plays against the enemy. Because he is so pompous and arrogant and he refuses to give up territory, it actually ends up costing him. And it costs Hitler in this situation because you're going to see Hitler with the same, well, same tendencies as the devil. Let's just put it that way. So he's proud and won't yield territory. This is ultimately his undoing. So here's Churchill in his memoirs again. Good progress was made except for the failure to capture Cain. This small but famous town was to be the scene of bitter struggles over many days. To us it was important because there was good ground to the east for constructing airstrips and it was also the hinge on which our whole plan turned and on which Montgomery, remember we introduced uh, General Bernard Montgomery in the last episode, intended to make a great left wheel by the American forces. Churchill continues, Cain was equally important for the Germans. If their lines were pierced, the whole of their 7th Army would be forced southeastwards towards the Loire, 
opening a gap between it and the 15th army in the north. The way to Paris would then be open. Thus Cain became the scene of ceaseless attacks and the most stubborn defense, drawing towards it a great part of the German divisions and especially their armor. Now listen to this next line. This was a help as well as a hindrance. In other words, it helped the Germans defend Cain, but only for a period of time. What's it also doing? It's drawing resource from everywhere else, which is then going to ultimately, once the Allies break through in Cain, what's it going to mean? Hitler's been weakened everywhere else. Because he didn't retract and reestablish fortifications, and because his arrogance and his pride, he is going to stand his ground and refuse to back down, it is actually going to lead to the weakening of his ranks. I've said this to you guys before. The enemy has limited resource. He does not have unlimited access to troops. As a result, he has to strategically marshal and place his troops where they will be most strategically utilized. If you pose a threat in your forward movement, you are giving yourself to Jesus Christ radically. You have to be tended to. If he doesn't respond to you, if he doesn't push back, you're going to become a great threat. So he must somehow dismiss and diminish your passion. He must come against it to quell this flame. And as a result, when he does, it actually, if you are ready for it and you push back and you smile, it's like wasted resource from the enemy. Because he's having to take from somewhere else to hit you and if you handle it well and you keep pressing, he's going to burn his fuel on you and he's going, it's going to weaken him elsewhere. And this is how we as Christians function. We recognize that if we embrace the challenges well where they don't push us back and they don't dishearten us and they don't cause us to give up and we keep pressing forward, the enemy is actually going to be broken in the very near future. So Winston Churchill continues, on June 17th at Margeville, near Soissons, sorry I, I don't speak French guys, I, I, I really wish I could say these names a little more French. I, I did get, uh, what was it, uh, now I can't remember, Corsage, Bokov, Bokage, now I forgot my own word, Bokage, yeah, so there it is, I'm going to say it a couple times, Bokage. On June 17th at Margaville, near Sosons, I don't know why I had to read that again. I just got past it, and now I, I read it again. Hitler held a conference with Rundstedt and Rommel. Those are his two generals over all of the forces along the Atlantic Wall, okay, north and south. Rundstedt is towards the north, Rommel is towards the south. His two generals pressed on him strongly the folly of bleeding the German, German army to death in Normandy. They urged that before it was destroyed, the 7th Army should make an orderly withdrawal toward the scene, where together with the 15th Army, it could fight a defensive but mobile battle with at least some hope of success. Well, that's reasonable, right? However, Hitler uh, doesn't like it. But Hitler would not agree. Here, as in Russia and Italy, he demanded that no ground should be given up and all should fight where they stood as a result, if you study the Eastern Front, which is uh, Soviet Russia against Germany, which is a very depressing battlefront to study because it's Stalin against Hitler. It's like evil against evil. It's not a pleasant uh, meditation. Hitler commands his troops not to step back. So Stalin did too. I mean, they literally had uh, laws in Soviet Russia that if a soldier even steps back, all their officers are commanded to kill them. Can you imagine fighting for a, a military machine like that? Hitler's going to do the same thing commands his soldiers to stand where they are and get massacred. There's no retreat. 
where there's no giving up territory and re-fortifying uh, behind a mountain pass or something. It's like you die where you are. And so the same thing is going to happen in Normandy. He is going to, as it was said, bleed the German army uh, dry because he is unwilling to give up this territory. He refuses to accept defeat in Normandy, and it ultimately is going to crush his defenses. So 1 Peter 4, 12 through 17. Beloved, uh, it's talking about you guys. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. But we just won D-Day. We just took the beaches of Normandy. We just had a luncheon at a chateau uh, near some lakes and lawns and some uh, frolicking cows. But beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. If you receive receive retaliation because you are pressing forward the agenda of Christ in your life, hey, this is something to be excited about. Blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. That was a great description of Nazi Germany right there. They are a busybody in other people's matters. They're taking territory that does not belong to them, sticking their nose where it doesn't belong. They are a thief, a murderer, an evildoer. I mean, that is just a great description. So don't suffer that way. The way the Germans are suffering in Normandy is pretty dark. However, the, the allies are actually fighting to restore, uh, to bring back what the thief has stolen to say, here, France, this belongs to you. They're not even trying to take their own territory. Think about it. Canada, America, and Great Britain are three of the most powerhouse nations that are coming in to fight. They're not claiming the territory. They're literally giving it back. They're taking what the thief has taken. They're suffering for a completely different purpose. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for the judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So that's a, it's a, the judgment is going to begin with the house of God. There's going to be a purifying that's going to take place in us as we take these steps forward. And, you know, yeah, London's going to be bombed. And yes, we're going to have just over a month delay in our Operation Breakout. But if it's hard for us, just imagine how hard it's going to be for the enemy when we do break out. The enemy's going to have his noise. He's going to make his statement, but it's going to be really bad for him. (laughs) And it is. It's going to be really bad for the Germans. It's going to be really bad for the devil. 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, will suffer retaliation, will experience hardship. This should not surprise us. We're considering it strange when we face fiery trials instead of considering it normal and rejoicing. Actually, if we handle it with rejoicing, we're gonna see a breakthrough in our life. The devil wants to turn us into self-pity. He wants to turn us inward. That's his entire goal. That's why he is using his limited resource on you in such an extended and intense way. He wants to break you. However, if you continue to stand stalwart, persevering, and enduring, you will see that the enemy, will, his forces will actually melt 
before the realities of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said to me, and I gave this scripture uh, just a few days ago. This is Paul speaking. Uh, and it's, he's talking about what God spoke to him with his thorn. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, instead of complaining about the bombing of London, I'm going to boast in the fact that we made the Luftwaffe come and need to bomb us again. Took four years to get the Luftwaffe up and going again, but hey, yeah, we must have done something to get them riled up. And those Luftwaffe are going to go down so hard and fast because the Royal Air Force is so much more powerful and it's going to devastate the German. That's why it's only two days. Believe me, if, if Hitler had the resource to keep bombing, he would try and take all the Allies' focus and put it somewhere else. He doesn't have that power. Oh, he can make a little noise, but then he's going down and he's going down fast. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Classic God. So we've talked about classic war, we've talked about classic devil or classic enemy, classic God. Persistence is always rewarded. There have been seasons in my life where I've, I've had to learn suffering. And the windows of time for it were short, and God gave me grace, and I saw breakthrough. And then in the past years, God has given me a test that I, I would honestly say I thought I was ready for, but I recognized I needed to learn something else, and that's something known as long-suffering. You see, suffering and long-suffering are similar, except for the long-suffering persists, which forces the believer to persist. You see, suffering can break you, if you don't have a God lens towards it. But if you have a God lens, you rejoice. And then what happens if it persists another day? You rejoice. What if it persists for a week? You rejoice. What if it persists for a month? You rejoice. What if it persists for a year? What if it persists for years? You rejoice. And the breakthrough, get this, always will come. That's a guarantee for all of you that are in a long-suffering season. Your job is to be a believer in the midst of it. Here's the other thing about classic God. God leverages the enemy's pride into greater gain. When the, remember I gave you the illustration when the devil hits me and I resist him. What happens, resistance, have you ever heard of resistance training? Resistance training actually makes you stronger. And so when you resist the enemy, it's sort of like pushing against a barbell. Uh, you lay on a bench press and you put some heavy weight on you. If you just let it crush you, like, oh, oh, no, this is so heavy. Well, it could break your rib if you just let it sit there for a while and you don't resist it. However, if you resist it, what does it do? It actually strengthens you. So the enemy's nonsense, when properly appropriated, actually makes you stronger. Then imagine he shoves it down in your chest again. You go, thank you. Rep two. Shoves down. Rep three. And then you like, you know, you have someone from around the room who's like, no pain, no gain, Ludi. And you're like, yeah. And then you're getting excited. More, more. I want to do more. Yeah, that's how it works in gyms, guys. Uh, <clears throat> the enemy's doggedness ultimately costs him dearly. 
So the other way I look at it is when he, uh, say I'm at a baseball bat, a baseball bat. I'm at home plate with a baseball bat. And the enemy's pitching all sorts of temptations, all sorts of thoughts that would try and curb me away from the truth of Jesus Christ. So my job is to whack them, right? It's to hit them out of the park. Okay, you want to throw that thought my way? Bam! That's where that one's going. I refuse it. And so what did I get? I just got to run right there. That's a home run, okay? That's worth one point. Okay, you want to bring another one? I'll get another point out of this one. Oh, there you go. Oh, two points. You want to keep bringing it? I'm going to drive the enemy down if he wants to throw this junk at me. That's the way a Christian lives. We live from a triumphant perspective that is ready to capitalize upon the enemy's stupidity. If he wants to try and play that game, we're going to get runs out of it. Okay? That's how a Christian needs to think, which is why Paul's like, therefore, most gladly I will rejoice. Most gladly I'm going to consider this a triumph. This is wonderful because when I'm getting all this nonsense, it actually turns into greater strength for me. It becomes runs for me and for the king of the universe. Luke 8, 5 through 8, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, some fell on rock, and some fell on thorns. You obviously notice I'm skipping quite a bit here. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. You see, when you are receiving this in your life, these, you're receiving the truth, and if it's good ground, that means it's not going to be stolen It says the devil came and and robbed it, or the cares of this life choked it out. There's various things that are trying to destroy this movement of seed in your life, because God has given you something. There's a breakthrough, but the devil is immediately going to move against it. So there's four different soils that are described of how they're going to receive this. And when we receive it properly, as it says it fell on good ground, it's going to spring up and yield a crop a hundredfold. Boy, the enemy's not going to like that. Exactly. You see, it's going to burst forth into new life and increase more and more territory if we're looking at it from a war metaphor. So this is continuing. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who having, this is when Jesus is interpreting it for them later. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. So that patience is the same way that all of early Christian history, all the martyrdoms, you know how they face their martyrdom? Is with patience. Well, what's that? Well, that's like the ability to endure great difficulty without breaking, right? And so they're going to have, what are they going to keep? They're going to keep the word that they have, and they're going to bear fruit with not breaking. They're going to continue to press forward into this territory. They're going to take it without falling to pieces. By the way, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit, patience. So you want to move forward without fumbling the ball, without losing the ground, without giving up your weapons, without forsaking all, saying, well, they're gonna hit London, I'm, I'm done. I didn't sign up for this. If London's gonna be hit again, I, I don't want anything in my hometown to ever be harmed. And so I give up. That's what the devil's playing you for. He knows you're a sucker for that sort of thing. Instead, no longer a sucker. I should have called this, that, this, this message no longer a sucker. Let's play this to win. And we have to have a long-term mentality for this. We have to recognize that, yes, friction will come, 
But God turns all of that friction into even a greater gain for his saints and for his glory. Father, teach us, train us to stand strong in the midst of the difficulty. And may it be leveraged full force against our enemy, even today. We love you and trust you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.